congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've looked last week and this week now, uh, the last couple weeks in all together, as to how Paul is trying, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, has been clearing up various confusions that there can be about marriage and singleness and divorce and, and all of that. And, and, and that's a good thing that he does that for us because the confusion that, that people had in, in back in Paul's day over marriage, um, while it may have been different than the confusions that we have today over marriage, uh, regardless, the, the fact is that no matter what the age, there are matters about marriage and divorce and singleness that can get complicated. And they can get confusing. And we can be glad that the Apostle is there and that the Word of God is there to help us to, to overcome these confusions as the Spirit of the Lord so blesses us to understand these things. So we're going to continue to look at how Paul is clearing up confusions over marriage tonight as they apply to what we call, and, and I, you know, there's a different way I could have put this, no doubt. I, I think Christian couples and mixed marriages, really the idea behind it is that on the one hand, in the first couple of verses that we look at, there's a discussion here about uh, Christian couples, the spouses are both Christians, and then the case is put where one of the spouses is Christian and the other one is not. So if, if we call that mixed marriage, uh, that's what we're defining, okay? There, there's, there's the uh, couples that are both Christians, and then you've got couples where one's the Christian and, and one's not the Christian. So that's what we're looking at in accordance with verses 10 through 16. So we, uh, we look, first of all, then, at Christian marriages or marriages where both spouses are Christian. Because then he talks about the rest uh, who are in a, in a mixed situation. So why does he bring up this point as he does? To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife shouldn't separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Why does he bring this up? Well, you'll recall, you'll remember when we first were looking at this chapter, that there was a concern that perhaps the single life was to be considered the superior life. You might remember we read in that very first verse uh, concerning the matters about which you wrote. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So there was this concern that perhaps the single life was preferable, uh, that it was to be considered superior. And since it was, uh, there would actually be people in those times who would be tempted at, at the least, at the least, to give up their relations with their spouse, and at the more, at the most, to divorce themselves from their spouse. Not, not just for anything, uh, but, but for what was perceived to be the good of one's spiritual life. But nothing more than that. Right? It was supposed to be for the good of one's spiritual life. You really didn't have to have a ground otherwise for divorce, except to think, that you'd be spiritually better off by divorcing. Now that seems foreign to us today, that thought. You know, today we'd be hard pressed to find people uh, giving up the married life for what would be perceived to be a better spiritual life. That's not why they do it. 
You'd be hard-pressed to find that today. Yet the idea of getting divorced without cause today, like back in those days, it's something we see all the time, don't we? With that in mind, we hear the Apostle Paul prefacing his comments here about staying married whenever possible as something that the Lord Jesus has already taught, right? To the married, I give this charge. Uh, to the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. This is, in essence, nothing new to Christian counsel. Uh, this is nothing new in terms of what has been taught uh, and by, by the Lord himself. We hear about it in, his, in the Gospels. Right, Matthew and Mark and Luke. The single life has had its benefits from God, but the married life, once one was in it, was typically a commandment of God to maintain. And that's why the Apostle says, the Lord, not I, to point out that this was something that the Lord Jesus had said already. Now the overall concern for Paul at this point we try to keep that in mind, right, as we step back a little bit, is to make clear that, that though being single has its advantages. Paul said that. He speaks about that earlier. He's also trying to make the point that it is no more holy than the married life. And so we should act accordingly by doing what can be done to keep open the possibility of repair of a marriage relationship. That's what we're hearing here in these verses. The Lord Jesus would say that if a person who unjustly divorced someone were to marry again, he would be committing adultery. And so in harmony with the Lord, the Apostle Paul concludes to those who divorce, despite the directive given by the Lord, that they better not go any farther than that. Stay single or try to reconcile. Divorce is one thing, but adultery is another, and you're just compounding your problem when you take that extra step as somebody who illegitimately divorced somebody else. Well, why would you have to stay single or try to reconcile? It's because the person divorced the other unjustly in this case, or, or maybe they both did that. Marriage is... The, the, the basic point is, and that's the thing we can't lose sight of in all of this, as, we, you know, as the Apostle seeks to clear up these issues that came his way, is simply this, that marriage is not supposed to be viewed as some kind of second-class status that we can throw around like we would some kind of rag in our, in our bag, so to speak, while, you know, while other things like singleness is something we would treat like a tuxedo or an evening dress. Second-class status is not what marriage is. It's, it's a holy institution. Spouses were called to respect that, uh, whether they were separated or whether they were still together. Now, maybe some had already separated uh, for what they had considered to be spiritual reasons, because they thought the single life was the better life, as we mentioned. Others in the future might divorce for other reasons than adultery, or as will be mentioned, willful desertion. 
Nevertheless, as Paul here and the Lord, he's in harmony with the Lord, the goal is still to be found in looking at your marriage through God's eyes rather than one's own. And that would include the call to stay single or, if at all possible, to seek reconciliation. And that counsel would be in harmony with what the Lord would say, as I mentioned in the Gospels, Matthew 19 or Matthew 5, about illegitimate divorces. The apostle is addressing spouses first, then, who both confess to be Christians. But then he goes on, doesn't he, in verses 12 through 16. In verses 12 through 16, he's addressing spouses uh, who, who have confessed to be Christians, but then he also, he's talked about that, but now he's addressing couples uh, where one is a Christian and one is not a Christian, Right? But to the rest, right? we talked about the ones that are Christians who are spouses and they married in the Lord. To the rest, I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And on the flip side, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So, so now we've got that what I've called that mixed marriage. You've got that situation where you've got one Christian and one non-Christian. Right? Um, now, as he's addressing this, one Christian and, and one non-Christian, Paul, uh, as we will see later, wouldn't promote the initiation of those kind of marriages. He would call, later on in this chapter, he called Christians only to marry in the Lord. Right, to marry another Christian. That's the important Nevertheless, if there were Christians married a non-Christian, he would not counsel them, he says here, to dissolve those marriages. It happened often enough in those days, and Peter deals with the very same thing, right, in 1 Peter 3, that people were converted to the faith after they were married, and, and yet their spouse hadn't been, or at least not yet, at least not right away. And so the idea would be that, well, some might think, well, maybe it's best for me to, to separate or to divorce from this person to avoid bad influence. So now you're in this context where you got one Christian, one non-Christian. And in that context, that Paul the Apostle says that he, that he speaks and not the Lord. You know, before he had said, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. This time he says, to the rest I say, I not the Lord. Now, he, he's not just giving his opinion, and he's not saying, well, this isn't what God wants, this isn't what the Lord Jesus wants. Uh, but it's only that the, the Lord Jesus hadn't spoken explicitly on this matter, but that now the apostle, as he is, he's the apostle Paul, he's speaking in the name of the Lord Jesus, he's going to speak on this issue now. And so this is authoritative because he's not just coming as, as Paul the man, he's coming as Paul the apostle sent by the Lord in the name of the Lord. So the apostle says that in such a case, the believing spouse shouldn't believe. And there's really three reasons that are given for that, why the believing spouse shouldn't leave. Um, and, and just again, to read through this a moment, we, just, we recognize uh, what's in front of us here. Because the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. 
But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know whether you're, you will save your husband or how you know husband whether you'll save your wife? Um, or how would you know wife whether you'll save your husband and how will you know husband whether you'll save your wife? So the, one of the first things that we, we can see, at least one of the things that we see, is that God has called us to peace. Right? And Paul's in the business, as, as, every, as every Christian should be, to promote peace as far as it depends on oneself. And that such peace is not done by unnecessarily promoting the separations of, of spouses in their marriages. It, it's the same reason the apostle gives later to the believer who might try to force an unwilling unbeliever to stay in a marriage. And we'll look at that in a moment more. But that's one thing. It's just the principle of Christian to try to do as much as possible to live in peace. As does, and that's Christ-like way, right? Who's the Prince of Peace, who's brought peace between us and God, who's, who's called us to, to peace one with another. So a second reason why uh, this is brought to our attention why the, the believing spouse shouldn't leave is that spiritual incompatibility is not a ground of divorce for the believer. Uh, in one way, that principle here is the same as before between two Christian spouses. As a Christian, one doesn't get divorced because you think that being single will necessarily make you better off spiritually. And again, that was an issue more back maybe in those days than it is in our day, but that was an issue. So, spiritual incompatibility is not a ground of divorce for the believer. Uh, number three, and, and this is where we spend the most of the time, is that instead of the unbeliever contaminating the marriage, thinking that somehow that, that's going to be of a bad influence, it's actually the opposite according to this passage. The believer remarkably sanctifies the unbeliever and the marriage. Uh, because the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. They're holy. Now, now Paul's not saying that the unbelieving husband or the unbelieving wife is automatically saved because they got married to a believing spouse or because they got, they're, they're married to a believing spouse. Well, then what is he trying to get at when he talks like that? Well, one thing we can say is that this marriage is one that's good. There's a goodness about it. It, it produces holy offspring. So as a believer, one should not be in the business of tearing it up. Uh, does that mean that, that there could not be some clashes? Yes, but like the Apostle Paul would say uh, to a believing wife in such a mixed circumstance, you as a believer do what you can to win your husband over. And it's not with words necessarily, not that words are not to use, but with beautiful acts of love and submission and kindness. And you might win over your husband that way. It's not guaranteed. But it could happen. Another answer to this, uh, when we're thinking about, you know, how is it that the 
the unbelieving husband is sanctified. In other words, when, when the husband is sanctified, it doesn't mean he's, he's morally and, and faithfully everything that he should be. But it can mean that in God's providence, God is setting this man or this woman, depending on which case it might be, aside for his purposes as an instrument of care for both spouse and children. God can do that. Right? God in his providence can use all kinds of things. He uses all kinds of people. He uses all kinds of people, believers or unbelievers, for his goodness. All, good, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He can use those who are unbelievers for his good ends, even though they're not saved, even though they're not believers, even though they're not Christians. And he could do that in this kind of marriage as well, even though, again, what's the ideal? The ideal marriage would be for both spouses to be believers. And that's, of course, for young people and young adults to remember, is that that's the approach you're supposed to be taking when you're looking for a spouse. Now, there's something encouraging here. Yes, it's true that bad company can corrupt good character. In fact, Paul's going to talk about that later in the letter. But in this case, it would seem that the idea is that goodness triumphs over evil. And we must not lose sight of that either, must we? That it might even be contagious, goodness could be. And that principle that goodness triumphs over evil, that triumphing is in keeping with Christ's triumph over sin, isn't it? It's a Christ-like way to live. It is Christ's goodness that has triumphed over sin and the devil and our flesh, our wrongdoing. Good beats evil. Good triumphs over evil. And, and, and the, uh, the believing spouse needs to keep that in mind in the midst of the, the particular uh, relationship that they have merrily with their unbelieving spouse. The children here, it says, are considered holy. When Timothy was born of a Greek and a Jew, he nevertheless was circumcised as one who was part of the covenant community. Paul is saying something similar here concerning the children in the Christian community. If the root is holy, the branches are holy, as Romans 11:16 would say. Children of believers, whether both parents are Christian or just one, are set apart for the sake of the believer. And it's remarkable that the holiness of the believer goes beyond oneself. It affects the unbelieving husband. It affects the offspring. Now, we're not used to that idea in our individualistic mentality that we can have, that individualistic age in which we live. But, but that's the way it is in God's covenant. The children of believers are set apart, not just believers. You children of Christians who are here, you have a special relationship and a special responsibility before God that children of believers, unbelievers, do not have. God has always said that children of believers belong to God's covenant. Why then should they also not receive the sign of that covenant? If they belong to the visible church, why should they not receive the sign of initiation? And so that verse in uh, verse 14, chapter 7, has been commonly used that way to help to help us understand better 
why it is that we as Reformed uh, covenantal uh, Christians believe that our children should be baptized uh, as part of God's covenant. Now, does that mean that all all offspring of believers are going to all be saved? Well, status doesn't guarantee salvation, does it? With the relationship comes the responsibility. With the covenant relationship comes the covenant responsibility. And so as as we grow to the age of responsibility, we as children and young adults and young people who are supposed to respond in faith to God's call to embrace what our baptism signifies. Being associated with God's covenant people does not mean we can take that association lightly. In fact, it's just the opposite. People say, well, you shouldn't baptize kids because then that just gives them a, gives them the wrong impression, gives them the wrong message. No, it doesn't. It actually deepens the impression. It, it, it gives them the right impression. It, it, it makes them take more seriously what it is that they're supposed to be in Christ. And, and that was, that's no different today than it was for the children of Israel long ago in the Old Covenant. You know, if we put ourselves on spiritual cruise control, thinking that we've made it spiritually because we're children of the covenant, well, then we're misusing and we're abusing the covenant privileges we have, and we are not taking seriously the covenant responsibilities that we have to believe, and we, we will find ourselves uh, eternally in hot water if we don't take those responsibilities seriously at all. And, and there's people that laugh at that. Um, but they won't be laughing if they never take those responsibilities seriously eternally. But you got to, again, step back here, because the main reason this matter about holiness is brought up in the first place is to show that if we're in a marriage where our spouse isn't a Christian, what we should do, we should do is whatever we can to make that marriage work. Now that shouldn't be earth shattering really because that's true about any of us who are married in the Lord. Right? We need to do whatever we can to make our marriage work. That's true about Christian spouses that that they need to work together to make their marriages work and uh, Christians who don't have an unbelieving uh, who don't have a believing spouse they need to do what they can to make their marriage work. And that we can, uh, we can uh, take home with us, right? Is that, that's important if we're thinking about marriage or if we're in marriage. Uh, we need to do whatever we can to make our marriages work. But what if the unbeliever wants to leave? Well, then the Apostle Paul says, let that person leave, right? But if the unbeliever partner separates, verse 15, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you'll save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So we read, let them leave. And the believer's not enslaved. The believer's not bound. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that he's not bound to stay with her or stay married, because that's stating the obvious. It has to mean the opposite of verse 11, 
where it says, but if she does separate, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should divorce his wife. He's not, that person's not bound to the marriage. He won't be bound to stay single. He won't be bound to, uh, or, or be unable to remarry because in God's eyes, that marriage is no longer intact. The believing spouse has been unjustly deserted. And because of that, that person who's been left, that Christian, doesn't want to burn with passion and remain single, perhaps. Although Paul would personally think that such singleness, as he said earlier, would have its advantages. But, but that person's not bound. He's not enslaved. He's got the right to marry again uh, because of the desertion of the unbelief. This idea of letting the person go is, is grounded. God's people are to live in peace. You don't try to force the unbelieving spouse to stay because all that's going to do is make for more problems and more tension and more turmoil. Um, then it would be obvious that the truth cannot walk down the same road because it cannot be agreed. Now, at the same time, one has to realize that there are no guarantees that staying together would bring about an evangelistic turn in the life of the unbelieving spouse. It could happen, but it's not necessarily going to happen. How do you know whether you're going to be able to save your husband or save your wife? Nor should evangelism be one of the reasons that we try to marry somebody with the idea that we can win them to Christ in time. We're going to make our boyfriend or our girlfriend our evangelistic project. You know, Paul wants us to marry in the Lord. The, the cases here were, were dealing with people who were already married. Uh, they were not the ideal that Paul had in mind. If you're going to get married, you don't want to say, well, sometime down the line, I hope that they become Christian. No, it's, it's before we get married, let's make sure that's true. Let's make sure that we're both on the same spiritual page. Because we're not, we're setting ourselves up for trouble. We can avoid that. Right? Let's, let's make sure that the two of us are walking down the same spiritual path together. Now again, as you know, as I know, as the Apostle knows, as the Corinthian Church knows, as the Church of Jesus Christ knows, marriage and divorce can be complicated. Just like the relationships that go along with that. And we do have to be thankful, though, that, that the Lord grants us words of hope concerning our marriages and direction as to how to handle some of the complications that can arise in them. And by the same word and spirit that calls us to faith in Christ for salvation, we can also come to, to further clarity as, as to how the Lord wants us to work out the complications in our marriages and, and all our relationships, for that matter. Now, one thing's for sure is that the Lord wants us to do all in our powers to work those relationships out, whether we're dealing with marriage relationships or others. Christ certainly did that for us, didn't he? Because Christ saw to it that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us so that we'd be at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we could share that bond of peace with those around us. Christ certainly did that for us. And as his image bears, as well as called to be like Christ, we're called to do nothing less, whether we're married or whether we're not.
Amen. Let's take a moment.